The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Mums the Word edition. It's Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. Widows is the latest from director Steve McQueen. It stars Viola Davis as the widow of a legendary Chicago criminal who must save her own skin and pull off one last big heist. And then Bodyguard is a shiny, pulpy BBC import thriller. It's about a hottie guarding another hottie. And finally, (laughs) (laughs) tell me I'm wrong. And then finally, uh, William Goldman was maybe the greatest American screenwriter since Ben Hecht, maybe the greatest of all time. Um, His death uh, this past week at the age of 87 has us asking what was his legacy. Certainly it was remarkable, but what else was his legacy? And uh, who and what is a screenwriter then and now? Uh, Joining me today is, oh my gosh, the words, they just form so Pavlovianly in my mouth. You are not the editor of Slate. Julia, the end of a friggin' Era, what what are you? What manner of creature are you? <laughs> I'm a deputy managing editor at the LA Times. <sighs> We're still dealing. Uh, and the and the offices are the tell me, are they a straight shot down the four oh five from uh, LAX? No, they are like at LAX. They're a straight shot down the four oh five from my home. Oh my god, you've turned into you've turned into Cheryl Warren's. Crow. She actually becomes Cheryl Crow while driving to work. I was gonna say she's turned into a Warren Zevon song in the <laughs> month she's well anyway, welcome back. Your huge shoes were were, you know, we filled them with water and people swam around in them like they were swimming pools. But we, we did get <laughs> oh, by. Oh come we, on. You guys had such great shows, <laughs> but I am so happy to be back in conversation with you. Very know, early in the morning on my end, so we'll see how I'm, sprightly I can keep it. I know. How exciting. And of course, uh, uh, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey. Boring old me. Same old, same old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Boring boring us. All right. So why don't we uh, dig right in, uh, starting with the movie. Steve McQueen has made a curious what's it of a movie. Dana, I love asking you, uh, what's Steve McQueen known for best? Well, I mean, you in the U.S., I guess 12 Years a Slave is his, you know, is his Oscar winning movie and the first movie of his that probably many Americans saw. Um, But this is his fifth film, I believe. He had already made a couple of movies, which we can talk about in in this segment earlier in Britain, and one here, um, that were much more on the arty end and very dark. And he seems in general to to be drawn to films that have some sort of social conscience and that are about very painful experiences. So Widows actually, as a heist movie and a thriller, is is something of a departure for him and in some other ways not. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, it's part a heist caper, part a feminist essay, maybe, part a tone poetical study of grief. Liam Neeson is a Chicago-based criminal. Uh, and as only movies can deliver one, I have to say he's sleek, handsome, yuppie, a loving husband. He's in a biracial marriage. When a big job goes horribly wrong, grotesquely wrong. He leaves his wife, played by Viola Davis, widowed and in hock to some really, really, really scary dudes. She makes a team of the other widows from her husband's crew. Uh, That's like a very high concept way of reducing a complex and multi-layered plot. Anyway, the movie stars uh, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, Colin Farrell, Cynthia Cynthia Erivo. I should say also the screenplay notably is co-written by um, Gillian Flynn. Let's listen to a clip. Our go date is in three days, the night of the debate. 
Now, all of our work is worth nothing if we don't move this money in fast. The notebook says $5 million. That's exactly the amount of money Mulligan was accused of taking in commission kickbacks. So over here, we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes, each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here, we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes, each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We gotta start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not gonna be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. Oh my, no one thinks they have the balls to pull it off. Dana, that's, that's I would argue that's a pretty unrepresentative clip. It's both, I should say, totally the high concept in one little nugget and sort of unrepresentative of what the film is. Uh, what'd you make of this movie? Yeah, that is an atypical clip, and it was used in the trailers, of course, because it's the suspenseful heist thriller part. But in a way, I think that's the weakest part of this movie, and it's certainly in terms of screen time is one of the smaller parts of the movie. In fact, in your setup, I mean, I understand why, because this is a lot of plot. This is actually boiled down from a BBC miniseries that I think had 12 episodes or something. So there's even more plot jammed in there where Colin Farrell plays this corrupt Chicago politician who... um, who is the son of Robert Duvall. His father was also a corrupt Chicago politician. And so there's also this upcoming election between him and this gang boss played by Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta. And so the concept is that the women are trying to pull off this heist on the same night that the big debate is happening in in this election runoff between these two men. So there's this almost Godfather-like sense of parallelism there. And I think this movie... Hmm. It's it's a real crowd pleaser. People greatly enjoyed it in the screening I went to. I greatly enjoyed everything to do with the, the women and their, their plan to pull off the heist. But I think this movie has a little too much going on and is not as sure in its boots when it comes to crime and political drama. In some ways, I don't know if you felt this, you guys felt this too, but... You felt the non-Americanness of the director, something about the way the election was set up and even the questions of race were handled. I And this at moments in 12 Years a Slave, I felt this, too, that it felt like an outsider's view on America. And I don't mean that in a xenophobic way. I mean, a British director has every right to make an American-style movie and look at it in his own way. But there was something that didn't feel quite... Um, native and natural, particularly about the uh, the political standoff as it was painted between these two figures running for alderman. Uh, Julia, what'd you, what'd you make of it? Huh? I'm, I'm still mulling Dana's analysis because I had a similar feeling of having been completely wrapped in the theater. Uh, I think the performances are across the board. Marvelous. Your litany of astonishing actors in this film leaves out Carrie Coon, who has a very small but pivotal role. Um, and it's certainly quite entertaining to watch all of these people, exchange views and attitude and be surprised by one another and what fate has in store for them. Um, But I don't know. I woke up this morning and it all crumbled in my head. Like I'm not quite sure what it adds up to, or I think maybe it's trying to add up to too much. Um, I mean, your, your note that it was a tone poem on grief Steve, I think is really interesting because I do think that it is simultaneously trying to be a blockbuster heist that also has things to say about race, politics, class, gender, and grief. And 
necessarily, I think, because it's tackling such huge topics. It's a little bit impressionistic in all of them. Um, and some of those impressions are incredibly powerful. I mean, just as a director, the filmmaking is is um, more elegant than and more thoughtful and more intriguing than, uh, for example, what we saw in Ocean's 8, the recent female heist movie, the most recent female heist movie I can think of. But I'm not quite sure what it all adds up to. I think that's where I'm left. However, I'm not sure that like the Britishness of his perspective on these things is where I would put my finger in trying to figure out why this doesn't seem, uh, why this seems less than the sum of its parts somehow. Yeah, I don't mm. think the Britishness is, is the center of it. I'm just trying to cast around for answers to that same question, is that why are so many of the elements great? And we didn't even mention that Daniel Kaluuya, of the hero of Get Out, plays Jeez. plays this yeah. terrifying villain, and he's, he's great in the role as well. And so all of these elements are wonderful, and many individual scenes are great. There's this Elizabeth Debicki, who is fantastic in her role as this... Um, I don't know how you describe her, but she's a, a young woman who spent her whole life being pushed around, right? Her husband was abusive to her. It's established at the beginning. He's one of the criminals in the ring. Her mother, played by Jackie Weaver, another, you know, A-list, incredible actress in a tiny role, uh, kind of pushes her into this sort of high-end prostitution job. I mean, she clearly is a person who has spent her life having decisions made for her by other people. And uh, and there's this great scene where she is assigned by Viola Davis to go to a gun show and get them all Glocks for the uh, for the holdup. And uh, and she kind of finds her voice at this gun show and does a bunch of um, pulls some ruses so that she can get the weapons she needs. And uh, And she's fantastic in that scene. And so each of these individual scenes is a gem. But I still had this feeling almost as if there were parts left out. As if this were a miniseries and we were only seeing mm. the highlight mm-hmm. reel of the entire thing. Yeah. I mean, I, so, you know, it is a very, very full stocking, um, this movie. Uh, and I think it where, and I admired, I kind of admired all of the parts and wasn't sure about the sum of them, even though I was grateful, you know, for having seen it. But what I found unsuccessful about this movie was it absolutely refused the high concept execution on its own high concept premise. So that scene that we heard is is totally unrepresentative. You know, like we, you know, we're women, we're gonna pull this off, we're the widows, we got balls, right? And and the rest of the movie almost almost studiedly disavows this approach to the material and instead is all about loss, grief, uh, violence. Um, and, you know, American politics and Chicago, like, you know, the, the kind of ecosystem of political ecosystem of Chicago. And what I found was when the genre elements were kind of, you know, the, 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 the you know, fingers of the movie snapped and the genre elements were asked to dance, you know, to kind of deliver the movie as a movie, they went together oddly in some ways. So you had very, very real emotions, very re- real social observation set against really improbable genre elements and sometimes I thought kind of flimsy genre elements and these two things together didn't form a coherent blend. That said, like everyone... The fact that we're all met on it though is making me want to defend it because I'm I'm not happy with this, with our conclusion being three rounds of meh. So on the one hand, we've all identified some kind of over ambitious what over stuffedness right on the other hand like there are so many aspects of this movie that were extraordinary and so and like wouldn't you rather see 20 of these a year than 20 of almost any other type of movie we've seen um you know even the sheer fact that child care for the heisters 
is an issue and comes up. Viola Davis, who is rich and does not have children in her care, uh, demands that they meet at 1115 at a warehouse. And the two single moms who are trying to like be in this caper with her are like, but that's like a really, that's hard. They're not like, couldn't it be 1115 in the morning when they're in school? Like, what an amazing thing. When have you ever seen them worry about childcare for a heist before? <laughs> like, what a delightful detail. And what what a modern detail. What an interesting way to think about things. Um, you know, in some ways, I think this movie reminds me a little bit of Get Out. I mean, I adored Get Out and think it's basically perfect. And I obviously don't think that about this movie. But the notion that somehow where Hollywood has left directors is trying to jam ideas into uh, blockbuster and or genre formats um, kind of results in some interesting and fresh things like even if this is slightly unsuccessful it's slightly unsuccessful in an interesting fresh modern i'd love to see a bunch more of them way so uh, maybe maybe that feels like condescending praise or something but um i i i that's my half-hearted luster of a day. Yeah, I, I would concur. I, and I don't even feel mad about this movie. It's more like it's a rocky terrain with peaks and valleys, but the peaks are real and it's an enjoy, a really enjoyable experience. I mean, I wish that we had understood a little bit more about the details of the heist so that it was kind of more satisfying in a plot way when things clicked into place or didn't click into place or, you know, when they went wrong at the heist. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think Steve McQueen is as interested in the genre elements as he is in disrupting the genre. And that's interesting and cool. And somebody else just occurred to me, another great actor in this movie who has, I think, too small of a role. But Cynthia Erivo, the Broadway Tony winning Broadway star, has a role as a babysitter and precisely fits into that whole the whole child care subplot. All right. Well, we're we're on. I hate to say we're on a fence. We're on an incredibly interesting fence that I think we're all grateful to be on. So go see the movie uh, and like tell us. Like none of us uh, would say you shouldn't see this film, right? Every, um, absolutely. Think everyone should see it, even though we're kind of mushy about it. Yeah. 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 No, I I totally it's, agree. Yeah. No, go see it and and then tell us how we're vehement wrong. positive ambivalence. That's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All uh, right, it's widows, and we're at Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest. Uh, tell us, you know, tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business. Um, Julia, this doesn't concern you. Uh, Dana, what do you have? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm the business lady now. Thanks, Steve. Um, our annual call-in show is coming up. That is our main piece of business. Once a year, usually around the holidays when we're trying to pack a lot of things in, we do one episode where we take listener questions via voicemail. We play your question and then we chew it over and answer it on the air. Can you guys think of some examples of great questions from years past, the kind of things that we like people to send in? I mean, I really hate to even put that many barriers down because it should just be whatever question you want to ask. But what are some culture questions we've gotten that have been fun to answer? Oh, my God. I feel like we've been asked about everything from like floral arrangements to Proustian Madelines of our childhood to uh, weird hypotheticals about if you could m go to any kind of city decade combo in geography slash history where would you go you know all the good stuff yeah we've gotten thrown some conundrum style questions like the ones the political gab fest does right just sort of logical puzzles or things that are just fun to talk about parlor game questions uh really whatever you've always wanted to hear us talk about and we've never done a segment on would be great throw us a movie throw us a book favorite this favorite that sometimes we get like you never talked about this what about this 
Yeah, and that's kind of great to realize there might be something major that got by us that we always wanted to talk about but but never realized. So if you want to leave us one of those questions and hopefully hear it answered on the air in a future episode, you can call this number, 323-628-1889. That's 323-628-1889. You will get a voicemail box and, uh, and you can leave us a question. Uh, Steve, also next up in business, I believe you have a small correction about something said on a recent show. What was that? Uh, I do indeed. Um, I regret making a, an error, which is that thanks to the conglomeration of publishing houses, Penguin, in some technical sense, is publishing the Gulag Archipelago with an introduction by Jordan Peterson. It is not coming out as a Penguin classic. It seems to be coming out, if my information in front of me is correct, as a vintage classic, which is different. Uh, I still think it's an abomination. I still think they shouldn't have done it. Um, I hope no one buys it, but of course, many, many people will. But um, but it doesn't taint Penguin Classics and their introductions, which I've endorsed in the past and which I think are amazing. So just to keep those two things separate, it is not a Penguin Classic. You don't have to throw your Penguin Freud and your Penguin Mark <laughs> and your Penguin this and your Penguin that into the trash can. And uh, actually start shooting penguins from helicopters out of just rage. <laughs> Oh my God. You, <laughs> Where did you, you guys went, you take this a, show you, while I was off? My God. <laughs> <laughs> took it dark. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my. All right. So we know what book not to buy. Also, in our Slate Plus segment today, we are going to be spoiling widows. This is a last minute call by Julia. We were going to talk about something else in Plus. And then she said, you know what? There's just there's so many twists in widows. She doesn't understand the last scene. We wanted to talk about some of the stuff that we couldn't talk about without ruining the movie for you. So if you have seen widows or don't plan to see widows, but would like to hear it spoiled, that's what we're going to do in the Slate Plus segment today. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine and the journalism we do. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and all the other great Slate podcasts and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, Steve, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Bodyguard is a sexy British import. It's now on Netflix. It's ooh-la-la. Setup is a Afghan war vet gets a high-profile job as bodyguard to the Home Secretary, to Madam Home Secretary. And they're both hot. Did I mention they're very hot? Uh, intrigue and the sexies ensue, though, as a backdrop to the whole drama is something quite serious, which is the P -P uh, PTSD of the title character. It stars Richard Madden as David Budd and Keely Hawks as Julia Montague. Uh, it's pulpy fun. Let's listen to a clip. Hi, it's me. Um, we need to catch up, come to the flat. Not sure what time we'll be home. Depends on the traffic. Cross the river and take the safe stock. Terry's been driving me for three years. I think he can be trusted to determine the fastest route. I've made a dynamic risk assessment, and given the current threat level, I'm recommending a diversion. And how much longer will that take? Can't say for certain, Mum. But in that case, we'll just take the usual route. Please, Terry. Take the South Suck, if you don't mind. My job's to keep you safe, Mum. I won't tell you how to do yours. No, but you're happy to make it harder. Okay, I mean, there's uh, Julia, a kind of, uh, you know, aura of... Uh, electric reticence between these two characters um especially in those early scenes uh well what did you make of this i had a lot of fun watching it but you know anyway what did you make of this what fun what fun i mean what miserable 
dark, doomy, gloomy, thematic, oh, surveillance state, oh, terror, oh, fear of citizen, oh, PTSD. <laughs> it, 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 it sort of bats about a bunch of very dark and serious subjects with its clever paws. But like, really, this is just a purring cat wanting to settle into our laps and treat us to a delightful, suspenseful um, souffle of tense thrillerdom. That, that is my verdict. Extremely fun, possibly slightly glibly taking very serious subjects in order to entertain us with taut suspense. Disagree. <laughs> Ooh, not fun or not about I mean, anything. I mean, I'm not that I just I'm not that invested in it. I guess I guess I don't understand. Apparently, this was a huge, huge hit in Britain, right? It had people on the edge of their seats. It was unlike here where it was dumped in Netflix all in one 12 episode season. It was aired serially there and apparently was, you know, keeping the entire nation on the edge of their seats waiting for the next installment. And it is true that each episode ends on a twist that, you know, leads you into the next. It's very Netflixy in that way. But this felt so familiar to me. It, I, I'm sort of I'm just surprised that something that's so generically recycles mm -hmm. themes mm -hmm. that we've seen in, I don't know, 24, Homeland. I mean, uh, certainly in, in the U.S., lots and lots of shows have taken this kind of security paranoia, post 9-11 security paranoia, I would call it, and uh, and turned it into glib entertainment in some way or another. And this just didn't seem terribly differentiated from that. I kept waiting for, okay, so what's the what's the touch going to be that makes it a 2018 version of this Kiefer Sutherlandish? you know, sexy spy romp. And that never really came along. I mean, I'm only three episodes in. I suppose that it could turn into something completely different. But Steve, did you also feel that you were in over-familiar territory? I thought that and I loved being there because in a weird way, over-familiar territory has become under-familiar ter territory in the age of super gourmet, peak, you know, TV, prestige TV. This is the anti-Romanoffs. This is... Um, got none of the ticks and jiggles of, of you know, super fancy, quote-unquote edgy. I mean, it, so the subject matter, yes. I mean, the, the I think in many ways, somewhat shallow treatment of his PTSD, um, you know. And, and maybe, somewhat, so far, somewhat shallow treatment also of the Muslim terrorists that, that yes. they're after. No, 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 absolutely. But, but we have gone so long on the show, and I think for good reason, without doing a net without doing a network TV show. And this is the British equivalent of network, if you ask me. You know, it's like implausibly hot people enacting implausibly hot, you know, or just totally implausible scenarios. Uh, and it just kind of worked for, it was like a vacation or something. It was like, I kind of loved being on the sunny beach of this, you know, nonsense. I mean, it's just- The sunny over, beach of like this the, grim, rainy, terror-wracked city. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, first of all, all of the political intrigue is just overwrought and- to my mind, completely in incredible. I mean, it doesn't have any sense that you're actually eavesdropping on the world as it's actually run. Um, but I just didn't care. It's just genre TV. I mean, it's sort of the opposite of Widows, right? It's like completely unapologetic about its genreness, and um, uh, and it's. Um, I like that. He, I like him, and but I like both of them. I mean, I think they're both just fantastically. You know, I keep saying it. They're just so hot. I mean, you know, I just I feel like I'm thruppling with them when I watch this. Um, he's this pretty boy in a kind of Alain Delon. It's like if you took Alain Delon and um, and Ewan McGregor and and you gene spliced them, uh, you'd get him. And she's just, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, she's just like. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even, I don't want to get in trouble, I, but it's just, <laughs> you know, and so it, to me, it just was, it was just such a passive, 
and guilty pleasure. I mean, I think I'm two and a half hours into it, maybe a little more, and I'm absolutely going to watch every last second of the show. Wow, okay, I really felt, I so felt that I was checking it off in order to talk about it with you guys after a couple episodes. I mean, d- isn't it annoying how the children and the wife of the, this main character are just bait? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, this show is not overtly sexist in any way, and many of the main characters, including powerful politicians, are female. But I still feel like it's about a guy who protects women, and his children are little bits of bait that are dangled in front of terrorists occasionally to, to get oh, your blood rushing. But, but I think, well, first of all, who wants to spend more time with the children? I mean... In a thriller, <laughs> like they're supposed to just be bait. What do you want? You want like act to actually like be on the floor doing blocks with them? Like forget about it. Also, uh, I would argue that one thing that makes this feel more modern, and it is a, um, again, it is glibly treated, I think, but in a way that makes it satisfying, is how aimed at a female audience this is, I think in part because of the matter of fact depictions of many women in positions of power. There are basically three female bosses that our main character, David Budd, which did you guys spot that he was Rob Stark, King of the North? I did not spot that until I read the reviews because he's so shorn of all his shaggy hair. Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> is, that, is that a Game of Thrones from, reference? From, from Game of Thrones. No, I would not have recognized him for that reason. All right, fair enough. Anyway, um, you know, that we we meet this sort of Hannah Rosen end of men character who's been sent off by the elites to fight in Afghanistan, has come back damaged and disillusioned about power, and also to find that everyone who's in charge of him is a woman. He is a female boss who has a female boss, and those female bosses assign him to protect this other female boss lady type and yes he is a man protecting uh you know a a woman but the woman is the woman charged with protecting the entire nation of england and all the moms and kids there and who's choosing to pursue it in an inflammatory and particular way driven by her own will ideas and ambitions and he is the kept help um and I think that the way in which that, you know, I mean, there is just, this has been remarked on in many of the reviews, but he, in a British manner, says, Mom, I can't even, I don't even know how to do the vowel that he puts between the two M's in the word that we would pronounce in America as ma'am. It's like, Mom, it's like marmalade without the R. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> like, I feel like someone should just do a supercut of all of the ma'ams that he says, Mom, Mom, Mom. But he, inflects the word mum as a response to receiving direction from a female boss with so much meaning, so many, you know, uh, pride, happiness, defiance, begrudgment, like, Mm -hmm. and he just has to keep submitting to these women in power. So A, you get to see, you know, hot Rob Stark submitting to all these female bosses of dubious purpose. And then um, you have this, uh, she's not. She's she's kind of ageless. This woman, this home secretary, but you know, so she's middle aged. She's played, of course. She's a very glamorous middle age. I've like never wanted a buoyant Bob so much as in watching her <laughs> hair in various scenes in this uh, miniseries. But she's. It's like plausible that a woman of that like face and body could have that position somehow. It's not like they just hired Jessica Beale 
and was like be sec- more like be secretary of state or something um and you know without spoiling too much she like is an object of like lust and you know enjoys a robust sexual self on top of being the boss lady of uh the security state I don't know, just the gender flip. Like, that's not what Kiefer Sutherland was up to. And honestly, it's not even really what Carrie Matheson was up to, where she was portrayed as this, you know, just such a crazy emotional woman in the largely male context of counterintelligence and security. So presenting this kind of fantasy that the security state is female somehow Mm. gives it enough of a flip that I found it totally compelling. Yeah, I can't deny that that character has agency and power. She sh- she certainly does. I'm not saying this show is somehow, you know, pushing its female characters around and, and sexist in that sense. I just I just felt like all, none of those people were plausible human beings. And I could sort of predict where all of their relationships were going to go. Again, I'm only three episodes in. It could be that there are still twists that would surprise me. But so far, the twists have all been plot related and not character related. No person has surprised me in this show so even though that figure is is well played by Richard Madden, I don't I don't feel that I know him or that I can get to know him. I feel like he's a set of ticks and ideas bundled together under a bulletproof vest. And uh, I don't know this this show just does, does not do it for me. Maybe I'm just not that into. I didn't watch Twenty Four either. Maybe I'm just not that into spycraft genre shows. I think it is fair. I think that critique is fair, Dana, in that everyone is so untrustworthy. I mean, the the show is so shifty in its perspective and, and allegiances that it is hard to be surprised by character. I think that is an astute observation because basically you sort of assume that you're wrong about everybody the whole time. I mean, I presume that, that people are going to go up and down in our estimation as the show goes on, right? That you're going to be led to trust certain characters and then the rug will be pulled out and you can't trust them anymore. And uh, and that, that kind of thing is fun in and of itself as a pure plot device but to me if it's not if there's not an actual person who's unfolding over the course of the series it's just hard to sustain my interest all right well i i'm sticking with this one Uh, hot meets hot i'm sticking with this one to the end Uh, it's just a brain vacation uh that i found really fun but curious to know what our listeners think you can you can write us or post on our facebook page all right moving on This this one's near and dear to my heart. William Goldman is just one of my favorite writers slash screenwriters. Uh, he died this past week at the age of 87, an absolute legend, Hollywood legend and beyond. He A list of his films will prove it immediately. I mean, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, Misery, uh, Harper, a great old uh, Paul Newman flick, uh, The Princess Bride, I mean, which is eternal and um marathon man and i'm sure i'm missing some um dana we thought this segment kind of could serve a couple of different purposes one is just to remember the career you know extraordinary career of goldman um but also just to think a little bit about what a screenwriter is or was and and wonder whether out loud whether that is still the same in this era of you know blockbuster filmmaking and prestige tv but uh don't let me guide you too much here i'm curious to know what your feelings are about goldman and his movies 
Yeah, I mean, like you, maybe maybe a little bit less so than you, but he was a formative writer for me as well, not just his screenplays, but his fiction. And I remember reading Marathon Man, the novel that he later based his own screenplay on. Probably in high school, I read that book. And just, I mean, I'm not a huge reader even now of, of thrillers and, and essentially tightly packed genre piece type books. But when they work, man, they're amazing. And Marathon Man is, is completely one of them. Um, Princess Bride, of course, also another case in which he wrote a novel and then turned it into a movie. And both are great, each in their own way. He, fa- he found what there was in that book to to cinematize, right? And he and he did it on the page. And how he does that and the way he writes about craft is another uh, part of his writing life that people have been really remembering these last few days as as memorials circulate about Goldman. He had so many good books about writing. And I think Adventures in the Screen Trade is one that you and I probably have both read and love, which is in a way a memoir, in a way a screenwriter's manual. It came out in the early 80s. And also just a, a great, funny, lively glimpse into what working in Hollywood has was like in that era. Jason Zinneman in Slate a couple of days ago wrote an admiring piece about The Season, which is a book he wrote about writing for Broadway. In fact, the play that he wrote for Broadway was a flop, one of the few flops of his of his career, really. But he still managed to turn it into gold by writing this this book that apparently is a, is a great insight into the theater world. So, I mean, I think of him almost as a chronicler of the entertainment industry as much as a producer of movies within it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia, is this someone you were... Well, you know, aware of or admired or or um, or what? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's been striking. So I asked our listeners, of course, before heading off on my sojourn west, what to consume about Los Angeles, and I've continued that question um, in other conversations since. And one of the things that's come up most is adventures in the screen trade, like just the degree to which everyone thinks this book from decades ago is actually the definitive book about how. Hollywood and the entertainment industry work and function and what its anxieties are and how relevant people think that book is. Um, It's like a true totem in a way that is striking. And for someone to have been so good at so many things, to have made movies that are still watched today in such a variety of genres, like, do you really think of the Princess Bride as coming from the same hand as all the President's Men. Like, if you didn't know that and you had to pick them all out of a lineup, would you presume that? You would not, right? Like, and it it, it sort of illustrates the um, variety and depth and dexterousness of his intellect and his brain. I also think there's a way in which his fluidity and sort of explaining Hollywood to itself and to others and um, his kind of nimbleness in hopping among mediums raise questions for me about how we think about screenwriters now versus how we thought about screenwriters at the height of his career um, and, you know, in the decades prior to it, where it's hard to imagine the modern screenwriter taking on a similar cultural role, or I find it hard to imagine that. Is that something that you... I'm curious what you think of that, Steve, since you've um, mm. spent a bunch of time thinking about the 70s and the 80s and Hollywood. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, so to begin with, right, it's important to remember the screenwriter has always been this equivocal figure in Hollywood, no matter what, no matter what the era was. Um, you know, the many of the moguls, if not most or all of them, 
scarcely read. You know, a lot of creative executives do read and read voraciously, but very many of them don't really read at all. They hire people to read for them. Um, there is a, a, a general atmosphere, or there has been historically a general atmosphere of contempt for the written word. Um, it's, it's, um, and yet in order to start up the whole machinery of Hollywood, you need someone to write a script. And um, screenwriters famously lack control and autonomy, um, uh, which is, you know, untrue of other kinds of creative writers. Um, you are hired to do a job. You're very often serving a client. Um, the client might be a powerful director. It might be a studio executive, whoever it is, a, pr a producer. They tend to hold complete total uh, rights to take what you've given them and rewrite it, hand it to another writer, fire you. Um, you know, by the time a movie ends up on the screen, it's been touched by a lot of different hands. Um, and so there's this way in which the screenwriter is both the kind of, you know, the deity who puts the cos imaginative cosmos in, in motion and makes it real. I mean, without a script, you cannot, I mean, you know, obviously you can make a movie without a script and people have done it, but by and large, you cannot make a movie without a script. You probably can't make a good one without a good script. Um, at the same time, the, the writer becomes, you know, massively devalued. And what, what was miraculous to me about Goldman is that he was able to write movies so consistently well across so many genres, uh, many of which, certainly five, six, seven more of which are eminently rewatchable. I mean, you could rewatch, you could watch The Princess Bride and then rewatch it again immediately after that. You could watch it with your kids. You could watch it alone. I mean, it's just, he was able to do something really distinctive with his uh, screenwriting. Um, they hold up when you try to, you know, when you just read them without seeing the film. Uh, whether or not someone could be that today, I mean, I just think we've, we've made it, we've, it's important to remember that it was always a director's medium and not a writer's medium. And that the exception, Ben Hecht, Charlie Kaufman, uh, William Goldman, it's always the exception if you know a screenwriter's name. Um, what's interesting is that we now have uh, a medium that's uh, the showrunner's medium. And the showrunner tends to be a writer and a director, right? Typically, or tends to be the you know person who conceptually originates the show, uh, is responsible for its tone and its feeling and its general arc, uh, and runs a writer's room. And, and that figure, I think, just in the imagine, you know, in the cultural imagination, has really supplanted this the screenwriter, this the writer of the ninety minute to two hour film that is not derived from familiar material, original material is that kind of movie has disappeared. So Dana, right, that kind of writer is going to disappear inevitably. I don't know, but maybe as you point out, it's always an anomaly when one exists, and we do still have Charlie Kaufman, right? I, I think that maybe there will always continue to be that person who bobs up, who can provide this magical, invisible thing called a screenplay, which, as you say, there's not really a good movie without a good screenplay, right? Um, I don't know. I'm not quite ready to be so hand-wringy as to say we're we're past the era of, of the screenwriter. But it's it does seem like it's harder to get that voice to emerge in a sequel-dominated market. I do think, I mean, one way to think about it, one of the things you were talking about, um, Steve, in that the screenwriter is fundamentally serving a client, reminds me of a riff that I'm pretty sure I got from the script notes guys. Our regular listeners will know I listen obsessively to script notes, the screenwriting podcast. It's good. Check it out. Um, and I think that John August or Craig Mazin, I think Craig, 
um, has pointed out that he would much rather be called a craftsman than an artist, that fundamentally the, the screenwriting is a craft. It's like being an architect or an engineer. You do have a client, you have a set of skills, but there's a certain pride in being a professional, in understanding what the requirements are for this project, and then meeting, delivering something that meets the requirements rather than um, sort of thinking of yourself as on the like high cloud city of art, capital A art. And I think that one of the evolution, you know, one of the things that's interesting right now is with the rise of the showrunner as the kind of lionized figure, maybe over the film director, that does put the position of, you know, that does put the writer in the position of being the artiste, right? Like, that's how you end up with a Romanoffs, right? As you, Matt Weiner hears for seven years from some crazy outlets that he's made a really great TV show that's worthy of thousands and thousands of words of scrutiny. Uh, and then he kind of gets to make whatever he wants for hours and hours. And then a scant number of people watch it and talk about it. Um, and so, you know, there is kind of pride and suffering, I think, from that craftsman position and the, and the notion of sort of being the beleaguered, important but undervalued figure on the movie set to being the boss on the TV set. Uh, and I think the craft of writing is going through a big shift in in kind of thinking about the relative positions of movies versus TV in the culture and what that means for writerdom and what that means for the hierarchy and how things get made. Um, and and Goldman sort of sang the song of the earlier hierarchy. Yeah, that's that's really astute, Julia. I think one place you really see that uh, uh, Goldman being from a different age of of how we considered screenwriters uh, is is that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was his first script. That I didn't know that until reading some of these obituaries and memorials about him. That he was a young writer doing his very first screenplay. And uh, that it sold in this kind of remarkable agenting deal where he made, for the time, a very large amount of money for his first screenplay and sort of debuted as a screenplay writing star, which is somewhat hard to imagine now. Someone not coming from the world of TV, not adapting their own book, but just writing an original screenplay, selling it for a bunch of money and launching themselves into a big career in the business. Uh, I can't uh, exit this segment without saying that you are a great screenwriter if you can write a one-word sentence that almost everyone recognizes immediately as yours, right? Can you think of what that one word is? I mean, I can think of a couple. Follow the money is his, right? Which is that's, not that's, even that's, something that came from the book, <laughs> All the President's Men. Dana, follow the money is three words. I, a one-word <laughs> sentence. Oh, it has to be, literally be one word. No, I, I don't have it. What is it? inconceivable <laughs> you didn't lisp you didn't lisp it's not real <laughs> all right well william goldman is you know uh, truly one of the great screenwriters of all time very curious to know what everyone's favorite william goldman movie is if you've never seen butch cassidy you gotta watch it um almost surely you've seen princess bride anyway um all right well moving on all right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse dana what do you have Stephen, in place of an endorsement this week, I have a call to action. This this calls back to our Slate Plus segment from a couple weeks ago when we mourned the passing of Filmstruck, the great classic film streaming service. 
which combined Criterion classics and uh, and some Warner Brothers classics and was a place to go as a streaming consumer if you wanted to watch either old movies, foreign movies, hard to find gems, etc. And uh, there was a national outpouring of grief from cinephiles, including a lot of high placed cinephiles like Guillermo del Toro was one of them. And I think Barbara Streisand was another um, who all circulated this petition to save Filmstruck, the kind of thing that usually sinks without a trace. But but I have a theory that this petition, which got more than 50,000 signatures last time I looked at it, must have had some effect because now Criterion is saying, they released a press release last week saying that they're going to relaunch in the spring something called the Criterion Channel, which will definitely have all the Criterion classic movies and will also apparently incorporate in some way some of these archival treasures from classic Hollywood. So my endorsement is just to encourage everyone who either loved Filmstruck or hearing about it wishes that they had explored it while it existed to go and become a charter subscriber to the Criterion Channel. They're making this deal right now where if you go and pre-sign up, essentially say, when this launches, I want to be a member, uh, you get a reduced price and you get some other benefits. But the main reason, I think, to do this is just to send them the message, yes, we are interested, because it's one of those, if you build it, they will come scenarios, right? If they get tons and tons and tons of pre-subscriptions for this charter membership thing, then maybe that voting block of consumers will have more power to say, hey, put more old movies on, do this, do that, improve your interface, etc. So if you want to send the message to big faceless corporations like Warner Media and AT&T that we would like our classic movies, please, you can go to criterion.com slash channel. That's criterion.com slash channel. And it's the sign up page for becoming a charter subscriber. And of course, they don't start charging you until whenever they will launch in the spring. So go and do it. Form form a mass. Ask for our movies back. Mm, fantastic. Uh, Julia, what do you have? My recommendation is another of the bits of what to read or consume about Los Angeles uh, advice that I followed during my uh, interim between jobs was one from listener Josie Ward of a book called Los Angeles, The Architecture of Four Ecologies. And that uh, sounds from the title um, like a dry monograph, right? It does not necessarily sound like a rollicking read. But it turns out that Rainer Bannum was like a slate writer before there was slate. This is a, I don't know, maybe 150-page treatise full of photographs making the ultimate pre-slate slate pitch that Los Angeles is uh, the height of urban perfection, that it is a city that um, has a glorious logic, that it is not a uh, automotive ruined traffic snarled mess, but in fact, such a thriving success as a metropolis that it challenges all of the pieties of urbanism championed by Jane Jacobs and others during the era when he was writing um, in ways that serious East Coast urbanists uh, must reckon with. And it is, I mean, I can't recommend it enough to anyone who is interested in planning Los Angeles, to anyone who's newly arrived in the city and has even a passing interest in design. It's just a great read. The sentences are so tart. The photographs are this wonderful. And there's plenty of maps, too, um, kind of memory lane. And it just gives you a vernacular to think about what you're looking at when you drive around this city. Um, 
but it's also just incredibly prickly and contrarian and any point that somebody might have ever made about Los Angeles, he disagrees with. Sometimes more persuasively than others, honestly, but it's incredibly enjoyable regardless of whether it's uh, persuasive. So it's Rainer Banham. If you have not read him, check him out. I've also since learned that there's a whole post Rainer Banham, Rainer Banham backlash. Who's this lame Brit coming over? <laughs> just like the, another dumb Easterner presuming to explain Los Angeles to itself. Um, you know, so there's certainly a fuck this guy backlash, but what a great read. Can't wait to read the backlash and hope that it's as sprightly prose wise. Can you spell his last name for me, Julie, just so I can look him up more easily? B A N H A M. Got it. All right. I'm going to be very self derivative here and uh, endorse a show. Uh, Happy Valley that I've endorsed before because I'm on series two is maybe not quite the sublime sublimity of season one, but it's so good. It is the latter day prime suspect. Uh, the showrunner is a woman named Sally Wainwright, the creator. Uh, it it's, uh, stars this woman, Sarah Lancashire, Sarah Lancashire. I'm sorry. I don't know which one who's sort of a t today's Helen Mirren, you know, or, or will be tomorrow's Helen Mirren or whatever. I mean, just a you know, a of just the magnificently expressive performance by an actress playing a, you know, career cop who's worn down by sexism and, uh, you know, man, man's inhumanity to man, but it's just her performance is so good. It doesn't matter that the second one isn't as tight as the first one. The writing is still fabulous throughout and she's amazing you just cannot take your eye off of her face like all of human suffering seems to devolve upon her and yet she's got this magnificent spirit it it's really good tv have you guys have you guys watched it no i remember june no. thomas endorsing it actually she was passionate about it. where where can you watch it right now uh it's in both seasons are on netflix Oh, cool. It's All so right. dumb because I, I loved Scott and Bailey so much, which is a show by the same person. Like, I, I just, I don't know why I haven't gotten around to it. I will take this nudge yeah, and and make myself watch it. I'm certain. Yeah, I mean, I have to say season one is as good as any prestige TV I've seen in years and years and years and years. And, and it's really, it's just up there. It's up there with Cracker and Prime Suspect as like great British cop TV making with... Uh, like iconic performance right at its center. So yeah, Happy Valley, it's on Netflix. Check it out. All right, well, Julia, mom. <laughs> that is disturbing. <laughs> this was, it's 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 great to have you back. It's just, it's, it's tough not having you be the, you know, angry mommy authority figure of your... Should I get a job uh, at the LA Times just to keep the psychodrama alive? I mean, we're hiring, man. Take a take a look. <laughs> um, you I'm happy to boss boss you around anytime, Steve. Just recreationally, if that's uh, if that's what you prefer. Okay, well, let me know if you need like a chiseled bodyguard, um, Dana. <laughs> Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We got a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Bye.